Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Over the past 12 months, we've been hearing a lot about foreign interference in Australia and overseas when it comes to social media and how social media is used by different actors to persuade or attempt to persuade certain audiences um, uh, in ways that are let's just say, not particularly clear and transparent. In other words, we're noticing that bad actors are using social media to generate or build upon or amplify certain causes. And we've seen this with Quanon in the US. The Supan Centre recently released a report that took a deep dive into the issue of the state of play with the Quanon uh, conspiracy adherents in the United States, what they do, why they do it, and also the fact that their online presence has been infiltrated by various foreign actors, including Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. Joining me today to have a conversation about how you find out some of these players join a particular uh, party online and, and, and throw things around and, and trying to manipulate is Leela McClintock. Now, she's a data analyst with a company called Limbic in the United States. And they were part of the exercise that Supan Centre conducted and recently published a report on. Leela, thank you for joining me. Of course, happy to be here. And now, uh, before we begin, I tend to, tend to like asking um, guests that may be unfamiliar to my usual audience, um, who they are and what they do. What would your background look like if you put it on an envelope or, or, or a post-it note? Right. So, yeah, as you mentioned, I am a data analyst with Limbic, which is a content science company. And at Limbic, we use artificial intelligence and predictive modeling to identify, quantify and counter foreign and domestic disinformation um, more broadly. And in terms of my specific background, I sort of got into this space in a bit of a wraparound way. I'm actually um, <laughs> was always interested in languages, actually. So I've studied Italian and Arabic for many years, and I've always been passionate about, you know, um, understanding what's lost in translation. So in a lot of ways, um, what I'm doing now is actually linked that we can, I'm sure, go into a little bit later. Um, but yeah, and so along with that, um, with my interests in languages, specifically Italian, I became very interested in the rise of far-right extremism in Italy. And so I ended up um, participating in numerous sort of research projects in college um, related to white supremacy extremism and the ways in which far-right ties extend transnationally. And now I'm at Limbic and I'm doing similar type of work, but more so from understanding how, you know, disinformation is spread online and the ways in which bad actors, um, you know, co-opt online spaces to spread disinformation. So that's a little bit about me. Well, let me just expand upon one area. You mentioned you, you, um, you're, you're particularly interested in Italian, but you mentioned Arabic as well. Did you... Have you had to use your Arabic language knowledge uh, in looking at the posts and other things online over time? Um, because there's been a fair bit of activity in Arabic when it comes to 
the other side of the, the terrorism equation, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS? Yeah, I actually have, believe it or not. And what's interesting <laughs> is that I've used Arabic in a lot of ways actually related to far-right extremism, which is quite interesting, um, specifically around election season in the United States. Um, you know, if you know a little bit about, you know, Saudi Arabia and their sort of Twitter apparatus. Um, yeah. Frequently, you know, bot accounts often affiliated with the regime will post, um, you know, a variety of tweets, typically, you know, praising um, the regime. But similarly, you know, there were a bunch of um, perhaps uh, Saudi linked accounts with, um, you know, profile pictures of Donald Trump or other far right figures that would then post hashtags like hashtag make America great again or hashtag stop the steal. So um, that was quite interesting because you would have a bunch of tweets in, you know, modern standard Arabic and then suddenly would transition to these hashtags with these seemingly, you know, bot like accounts. So I've actually been able to use Arabic a lot in that space, which has been very, very interesting for me. It, it, that, that's fascinating because when you, for, for some people, you know, with a name like Rablik, you probably guess I'd, I'd speak one of the Slavic languages being Croatian. It, 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 your mind works at different levels when you've got another language that you're fluent in yeah. or more. Um, let, let's just segue into the report and we can we can talk more about what you found out with uh, sure. your, your Saudi Arabia. Now, how did you, how did the research for this particular report uh, into QAnon conspiracy theorists begin for you? Right, so that's a really great question. Um, so Limbic started working with the Supon group a little while ago. Um, so basically what at Limbic, um, we sort of have two sides to our business. One side is that we work with different media partners and agencies and help them inform their messaging strategies. But then on okay. the more security side of things, um, our analysis of social media content um, allows us to inform effective counter messaging strategies for public and private sector clients. So basically we use our expertise on, you know, the ways in which content resonates with folks to determine how, you know, that content could be manipulated by bad actors and how it could, you know, impact, you know, various private sector companies or different public sector actors. So with the Supon group that, you know, works with a variety of different clients, we had the opportunity to use um, our methods of analysis and the ways in which we find weaponized content online. And through that, this work, um, you know, regarding QAnon was born. Um, we created various sets of queries with QAnon specific hashtags and keywords um, to help us flag QAnon affiliated content. And that sort of, you know, allowed us to notice a variety of different patterns and um, different things um, that led us to believe, you know, the ways in which QAnon poses, you know, a grave threat to national security. Um, and we realized the importance of this work, you know, the more and more we worked um, with the Supon group and the more and more we learned about the way QAnon spreads or QAnon conspiracies rather spread online. Now, there was a substantial number of posts that you have downloaded and analyzed. How did you get that sample? How did that work? Yeah, so well, what, 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 do we, what do we do a different set of hashtags and queries? We create those queries in a third-party software platform. 
And through that, we're able to pull the data. And that will often, you know, that gives us lists of, you know, posts upon posts from a variety of different accounts that are all classified um, as QAnon affiliated. And um, we also, you know, have a QAnon um, classification content model from a topic standpoint. So, um, you know, in that sense, we can understand the ways in which hashtags or different tweets, um, or sorry, not hashtags or tweets, but the ways in which accounts have hijacked certain hashtags, such as, you know, hashtag when we go one, we go all, or hashtag save the children. Those are very obvious and easy to identify. So when we're looking through our data, we can see, you know, those are surely QAnon affiliated, or those would be classified as QAnon. But then we also have other, you know, types of posts or tweets that we see um, that are a little more amorphous and, you know, less easy to identify. And so that's when we start to look for, you know, different language patterns or different content style patterns. Um, and the and and something really helpful is, you know, looking at the different comments that have been on certain posts. And so we'll really have to go at a manual sort of granular level, um, you know, to classify certain types of content. So it's a bit of an inexact science, but it involves, you know, in addition to our automated processes, it involves us really, you know you know, getting down into the data and understanding what does this say? Um, how might this appeal to someone? Um, and how can we counter it? Okay, so little, let's get the process clear here. The there are a whole bunch of hashtags and keywords that are used to identify yes. posts between yes. one date and that have been put up between one date and another. Yes. Uh, then you've got the overlay of human intervention. So, okay, now that we've got the sample of, I think the number was something like 166,000? Yes, yes. Yeah, um, 667,000. Now that you've got that, you then transpose human intervention to look at what those posts um, say and how... Yes how people interact and respond. Yes, yeah, so, you know, prior to any reporting that we do, um, the collected posts and volume and interaction data are analyzed and the data sets are checked for any missing data. So that's also how we find different outliers and other anomalies. So it, we go through, you know, a multi-step process to make sure the data we have is clean and um, is classified accurately. So, yeah. Okay, now, now the fun stuff begins when you start to notice things that are not, um, uh, let's, for the sake of the argument, call it a Native American post. Um, okay. All right? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, a, a post that's come from someone who is a Quanon uh, adherent in the U.S., Right. What are the things that you look for that are right. the, the electronic fingerprint that, that, that tell you that a post may uh, originate from somewhere else? Right. So this is also kind of a multi-pronged process because it is very difficult to classify, you know, content specifically from foreign sources. Classifying domestic, um, you know, born sources are quite easy. Um, usually, it's you're able to tell based on the language um, present in the posts, 
the types of hashtags that are used oftentimes. And, um, you know, oftentimes you can see where, specifically on Facebook, where administrators are located in the world. So that's sort of the first step, um, you know, determining admin country or location. And this you get via page transparency for certain Facebook pages. And then furthermore, after that, we at Limbic use a proprietary foreign influence classification model to determine the likelihood of foreign influence for pages and groups where we don't have access to the administration country. And um, you know, our classification model is, a, we use a machine learning clustering technique developed to discover foreign influence activity and most likely country of origin. And through this, we're able to actually quantify post similarity with English language content from known foreign accounts and other sources. So anytime we don't know the location of a certain post or account, we compare that to the accounts we already know through different AI techniques, essentially. Um, and so, and oftentimes as well, we have to take a manual approach as well, just to you know make sure we're covering all our bases and make sure there are no anomalies in our decision or in the data as well. So there's always a margin of error in this type of work, but we're very confident in, you know, the likelihood of our tools to classify foreign or non, um, you know, for lack of a better term, foreign content or domestic content rather. Okay, but in, in the case of, say, posts from Russia, what are the things that you found? What, what, what gave the... What, what, what were the giveaways, signs of the posts that you found that were coming from you know, the Russian side of the equation? Right. So for Russia, for example, um, we already know, you know that state-backed Russian sources, for example, RT News, will often use certain captions or headlines or content that does seem explicitly conspiratorial or QAnon related in nature. And often when you look at the comments of the people who are looking at those posts, you'll have people spreading different QAnon conspiracies or posting QAnon style memes. And with Russia specifically for accounts that we aren't necessarily state backed or look a little bit different, um, the way we look at that is just trying to understand the types the type of language they use, the type of content they produce. Something really frequent that we observe is the use of memes, um, you know, certain, you know, targeted memes that could evidently appeal to a US related viewer or a Western viewer um, and the type of language that's used in those memes. Similarly, we've noticed the same usage of QAnon hashtags. And that's what makes, you know, classifying um, uh, foreign content so difficult is because a lot of it can look the same. And that's the point, right? The point is to appeal to a certain segment of the US population. And the point is to mimic the ways in which domestic accounts post QAnon content. So in combination with what we know, you know, about previously known um, uh, Russian, you know, backed accounts, through our, you know, our foreign classification model, and the way we've trained it, um, through natural language processing, we're able to, using that, have a high level of confidence in that which we're looking at is from a Russian source. Are you noticing, did you notice in your analysis when you're looking at okay, the, the Russian um, originated uh, Facebook 
content and the Chinese originated Facebook content um, that the, the Chinese content was mimicking the Russian content or were there, were there things that were uh, different about what was coming from Beijing? Yeah, we noticed a lot of similarities and I know that we touch on this in the report, um, you know, how Beijing has not only expanded its disinformation apparatus, but has mimicked, you know, the Kremlin in the way that it spreads disinformation, um, specifically in the ways in which they sort of infringe upon these polarizing fault lines in American society. And that often can be, you know, a dead giveaway um, that these countries are trying to interfere in American society or American politics. So we definitely notice similarities. And I think, you know, through this, through our data and realizing that, you know, China does have an apparent prominence in disseminating these conspiracies, I think we can understand that even though, you know, the groups disseminate, disseminate similar types of content from both China and Russia, social media platforms are certainly not as well versed in, you know, classifying um, campaigns of Chinese origin versus those from Russia. So although there are similarities, I do think because only recently has, you know, Beijing begun to sort of play a more active role in this space, it's more difficult to classify their content. You also talk about um, the way in the report, there's a bit of a conversation that takes place about uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Right. Um, and it, 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 when you when you hear about Russia and China, I think most people understand that they've got uh, you know, propaganda arms that deal with these these things online and elsewhere. Um, how what peculiarities do you notice in the the Iranian um, in the Iranian post? Is there anything that that was different? in that that uh, you identified? Yeah, I think the main difference that I noticed, um, I, I find that specifically Iranian and Saudi um, accounts primarily come from Twitter. So although there is surely content um, present on Facebook as well, I think specifically the ways in which Saudi and Iranian accounts create these kind of bot-like identities by using a fake profile picture um, can often be, you know, a giveaway that, you know, they're coming from those accounts versus um, a Russia or a China. Similarly, I've also noticed certain hashtags pop up more so um, with Saudi and Iranian accounts versus Chinese and um, Russian accounts. And in addition, um, another pattern that we notice more generally um, you know, for inauthentic behavior online that's quite specific to China and Russia is sort of this clustering of accounts that will often post the same types of information at exactly the same time. And this is a very, you know, peculiar happening um, in which certain accounts that are special interest focused, like, for example, a group of accounts with Chinese admin um, that are kind of lifestyle content yeah. will suddenly one day you know, post something about human trafficking at the US-Mexico border. And then there will be a series of comments saying, you know, save the children or the Democrats are trafficking children. 
um, you know, despite these accounts seemingly having this lifestyle oriented nature. And I've noticed that a lot more so with China and Russia than in Saudi Arabia, where I find the kind of the overt or QAnon-ness, for lack of a better word, is, is just more easy to identify. And so a lot of these, uh, these accounts have kind of a lot of various little complexities that we kind of need to take into account whenever we're doing this type of research. Um, you mentioned earlier that you uh, had a lot of languages and, and Italian and, and, and Arabic were two of the languages that you've um, mastered, learned. Um, how easy is it to, to grab, deal with uh, the online content uh, in Arabic? Well, how, does that, how did that play out for you when you were working on this particular project? Yeah, I mean, Arabic is complicated. Obviously, there are a lot of different dialects and manners of speaking. Um, but typically, just you know, using my own knowledge of the language, specifically, um, what's often hard to tell in certain posts is the use of sarcasm. Um, can be very difficult, specifically when you're reading, you know, Arabic language posts. But interestingly, you know, what we're primarily focused on is trying to understand how these accounts that are seemingly, um, you know, Arabic language will post in English, right? If you have a, an account with a Saudi administrator that typically um, posts only in their Arabic, and then suddenly they'll post something that says, hashtag make America great again, I'm voting for Trump. It's, it seems a little off, <laughs> right? So although I've used my Arabic, you know, in this work and in, trying to understand some of the stuff, you know, that's said in Arabic online and whether it's affiliated with QAnon. What's typically more likely to be affiliated with QAnon are posts in English. And that sort of indicates to us that, you know, these actors are targeting an English speaking audience. And I think that's kind of the key takeaway that they're, they want to weaponize and co-opt these conspiracies in order to sow further societal discord and to assert some other kind of political agenda. So there's that complexity in there as well. Now, the clearly the work didn't just involve um, looking at foreign influence uh, because there's mm -hmm. only about a fifth of the posts that you analyzed right. were, the, were the sample that uh, provided the evidence for uh, you know, Russian, Chinese, Iranian, and Saudi Arabian um, dabbling or meddling, <laughs> if I can put it that right. way. Yes. Um, but it, what did you learn from the rest of the material about the behavior of people that are Quanon adherents? What were the findings there? Yeah, so, you know, I think as we asserted in the report and as we've been asserting, you know, obviously QAnon is a domestic movement. It has roots, um, you know, in U.S. history, um, often very, you know, xenophobic, um, anti-Semitic roots. So, you know, a lot of the, the complexity of QAnon, of the QAnon movement more generally, is that it's very hard to classify adherence because at this point, you know, frankly, probably due to the politicization of the QAnon movement, the ways in which QAnon has kind of become mainstream in American life, 
you know, we're finding that QAnon adherents can range from anti-vaxxers or anti-abortion activists um, or far-right extremists, right? And so QAnon has sort of become intertwined with these various other concerning um, actors and movements in and of themselves. And because QAnon, you know, is kind of a set of conspiracies, you know, somebody might believe in one QAnon conspiracy, but not another. And so, you know, the interesting thing about looking at specifically um, domestic accounts or, you know, QAnon adherent accounts, well, oftentimes, you know, you'll find a Telegram channel, for example, that explicitly says, um, you know, Q, when we go, when we go all, we know that's a QAnon account. But then maybe we'll see another account that says human trafficking or, sorry, end human trafficking or save the children. And we'll see, you know, classic sort of QAnon affiliated content in that, right? Like different hashtags that have been co-opted by the movement, like Save the Children. But then other times they might be completely different and might speak about a different topic. So it's hard to kind of classify and put QAnon in one category because it's so widespread now. And there are so many different, um, you know, tentacles attached to QAnon, um, specifically when thinking about the ways in which um, you know bad actors have co-opted the conspiracy as well in order to draw new followers in. The it, the salad bowl effect that QAnon QAnon has is interesting right. to observe. Um, and you're right; it's difficult to classify. Does that does that complicate data analysis for you? When you're looking at it, when you're looking at it raw, I mean, it definitely um, makes our work harder, and that we have to um, really sit down and make sure that everything we're looking at is QAnon related. And it's I found that you know it's become increasingly harder the more widespread and globalized QAnon becomes, and the more and more people sort of get involved in the movement. And I think that's sort of the danger of QAnon in and of itself is that it is difficult to classify and it's difficult to tackle, you know, at a federal government level because, you know, even people you might assume, right, or groups you might assume, you know, might not revert to those conspiracies. We see the ways in which they kind of become intertwined, you know, with different types of folks. Um, and I think we saw that as well, you know, at the insurrection on January 6th. And so I think it also just makes our work even more important, you know, as we continue to refine our methodologies and refine our classification models um, to make sure that we're um, bringing in, you know, all applicable content and that we're monitoring um, all of the content necessary. Um, which, which brings me to the next question because reports like this are a, snapshot in time mm -hmm. uh, in terms of intelligence gathering how much of the process of getting the posts getting the posts getting the data is automated so that you come back to looking at it at a point in time to, to to review where things are at to review what the level of interference from china is as opposed to russia as opposed to saudi arabia as opposed to iran or as opposed to any other player that may emerge Right, so most of the process is automated, but as I mentioned earlier, um, 
you know, we do have to go in manually and make sure that there are no anomalies in the data or no incorrect, um, you know, accounts or posts that we've included in that. So it is this, you know, kind of more complex, um, you know, a little bit of a painstaking process, um, sometimes at the artifact level, as we're looking through all of these different posts, you know, in order to make sure that that which we're including is accurate and that it's explicitly affiliated with QAnon or that we can say with confidence that this is from a Russian source or from a Chinese source, right? So I don't know if that answers your question completely, but um, it definitely requires sort of a multi-pronged approach. How many of you didn't get involved in it? Because 166,000 posts, um, you know, harvested and then analyzed, <laughs> doesn't, I imagine, doesn't just involve Leela McClintock sitting there no. looking at every single one of them. No, <laughs> definitely not. I mean, we worked, um, you know, with, you know, our other personnel at Limbic to help us with this. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the folks at the Sufon Center were actively involved in the process as well. And um, we all had access to the data so we could all look at it and um, making sure you know, that we were analyzing everything effectively. So it definitely required a lot of personnel. And, you know, this research project was a few months in the making. So, um, it, you know, a lot of long hours and late nights. But, um, you know, I think we all feel very, you know, happy with what we've been able to produce and, and show. It's fairly comprehensive. Are you, can we expect a, a follow-up based on the report that uh, has been released on QAnon, given that, there were some early indications that you uh, have in the Quanon report that the dynamics have been shifting in the over in the overseas influence, in the overseas interference. Um, it looks like from what what's been reported that there's grounds for an update at some stage. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I hope so. I think, um, especially now, QAnon is such a, a hot button topic. But in addition, I think we've seen and I know I've seen it in Australia, um, you know, the ways in which QAnon is sort of taken root in different countries and kind of adapted um, to the different sort of circumstances in different countries, which is frightening to see. And I think, I do think now that um, you know, federal government, the federal government in the US is kind of taking this threat um, more seriously, I believe, um, FBI, the FBI director um, remains concerned about the conspiracy and is hoping to release a new report on it. Um, I don't I know we definitely at the at Limbic as well as at the Soupon Center definitely want to keep, you know, involved in this space and keep and you know, we continue to, you know, flag and analyze the data as it comes in for our different clients. So I don't think this process will end, and I, I hope we get to provide some updates. Now, the, the, you mentioned Australia there briefly. What are the things you've noticed in Australia? Is there anything particular in the data that you saw, or is that more of a general observation about the environment? Um, I think, you know, from my end, it was more of a general observation. I mean, I've certainly seen, you know, just, you know, if, for example, if I would do, you know, a search for a specific QAnon hashtag, I have noticed that a lot of, you know, accounts that are seemingly Australian will, you know, post um, QAnon affiliated content with those same hashtags, you know, often saying things like, you know, the Democratic Party is, you know, filled with pedophiles, right? 
But then at the same time, I think there's also been, you know, some analysis done. I, I think I was reading an article about this earlier about how, you know, um, QAnon in the various countries it's taken root in is not just talking about the US, right? It's spreading conspiracies about its own country, uh, right? So there might still be a human trafficking ring, but it might not be among the Democratic Party, but rather the Australian equivalent. Um, so I think that's interesting to keep in mind that, you know, and important to keep in mind that the movement is adaptable and that people, you know, it's no longer a domestic threat anymore. You know, QAnon has sort of reached, you know, countries all over the world at this point. And I think that was one of our main takeaways from this report as well. It's, you know, a transnational threat um, as well. One of the things that, uh... I, as a journalist and someone who's dabbled in, or taught rather, uh, ordered an assurance uh, interested in is um, letting the evidence speak for itself. And you, as a data analyst, right. would be familiar with that. Right. Not everybody has um, the training and the knowledge to be able to look at information the way you and I might. Right. Uh, what are the things that you would recommend people keep in mind when they're looking at social media and other things to, to, to sort of inoculate themselves from some of the, um, some of the kind of material that you've observed in, in doing your research? Is there any... Um, uh, is there anything that you could say to to a listener about how to approach the material on social media? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question um, and something that I think about a lot, actually. And I think the concerning thing about, you know, conspiracy theories more generally and, you know, clearly QAnon conspiracies is not everybody you know, believing in these conspiracies is a malintentioned person, right? I mean, for example, save the children. So many people actually think they're saving the children, you know, by spreading these conspiracy theories. And so what I think, um, you know, this might be more so a recommendation for folks at the government level to realize that community-centered and offline solutions are necessary to counter this digital epidemic, if you will. Um, I, I think that digital literacy is a huge problem um, in the United States, but all over the world as well. And I, I think, um, you know, not only encouraging people to, you know, take a class on, you know, information or the way information is conveyed online, um, but even more so, I think we need to think more deeply about the systemic barriers that are put in place for people and, you know, why you know, people will, you know, fall to conspiracy theories or conspiratorial beliefs. I think there's a broader question, um, you know, in the ways in which certain communities believe what they believe in, you know, because of inherent mistrust in the government and inherent mistrust in the people that are supposed to be protecting us. So I think it raises, you know, further questions about how we can encourage people to maybe, um, you know, talk to their friends and family and see if they can, you know, find someone that might help them, you know, understand that these conspiracies can be dangerous. Although I will say it's difficult and I think it's difficult to change someone's belief system. 
But I do believe that, you know, if big tech companies and, you know, government entities can, you know, provide the tools for people to learn more about how to be safe online, I think we'd all be the better for it. What role do you think the media has in um, uh, helping people understand what they're, what they're seeing and how uh, what they're seeing is needs to be questioned and they need to be sceptical about? I think, you know, I've seen a lot of different media entities sort of release different, you know, reports or, you know, fact sheets on, you know, myth versus fact, right? This is fact or this is a myth, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's, you know, harder than that, especially, you know, you can't really prevent someone from believing in thing, right? Right. So, right. So, right. So, um, and, you know, the media in general, you know, news outlets, need to understand that, you know, they need to be careful, I think, in the types of headlines that they use, in the types of, you know, wording that they use in what they put out, because it can easily be, you know, manipulated or co-opted by somebody who could either be malintentioned or somebody who already has these conspiratorial beliefs. So I think the media just needs to tread more carefully and think about um, you know, how they might affect a vulnerable or susceptible person to these conspiracies. And similarly, sort of stray away from the sensationalism in some other sense as well. So again, a complex question. And I, but I think um, we all need to put some thought into, you know, the ways in which we craft what we put online, because what's online stays online forever, and you never know who's going to see it, right? So... And Leela, uh, it's been fascinating talking with you uh, and exploring the way in which the recent report was done. And I'm sure people will be particularly fascinated by this as they as they listen. And I'll probably go to the report and look at it with a set of fresh eyes. So thank you for joining me today. Of course, it was a pleasure. It was a great chat. And I hope we can have a chance to talk again in, in due course. Yes, definitely. Would love that.